I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. In the half century since James Coleman and his colleagues first documented racial gaps in student achievement, education researchers have done little to help close those gaps. We have debated endlessly and fruitlessly in our seminar rooms and academic journals about the effects of poverty, neighborhoods, and schools on these disparities. Meanwhile, the labor market meets out increasingly harsh punishments to each new cohort of students to emerge from our schools unprepared. That's pretty stern stuff, but that's how Harvard economist Tom Kane opens his article calling for a new approach to education research in the latest issue of Education Next. I'm Marty West, associate editor of EdNext. And I'm happy that Tom has joined me today to help us understand his critique and his vision for the future. Thanks for making the time to talk, Tom. Thanks, Marty. So what I find most interesting about your article is that you're critical not just of the focus of researchers on describing the problems, but also of recent efforts to push things in a more solutions-oriented direction through things like randomized controlled trials of promising programs and the dissemination of their results through mechanisms like the What Works Clearinghouse why, why, in your view, hasn't that approach worked? So we have to remember that the goal is not to build a central knowledge base. Rather, our goal is to have an effect on the decisions of school districts and state agencies to use effective interventions. And I think that we have... Um, relied too heavily on the um, medical model of, of research in education and not realize that we don't have the same mechanisms that the medical um, world has for translating a central knowledge base into local action. So why and, not build those mechanisms? I mean, yep. medicine is often seen as a model. We have uh, you know, improvements in longevity, improvements in quality of life. Uh, why not aspire to that? So I, I actually think it would be easier um, to um, build a different model of, of education research that instead supports district leaders and state education um, agencies to use their own data, which they've been developing over the last you know, decade with federal support to start to track and measure the impacts of their own initiatives. Now, I should be clear, I'm not saying that um, the randomized controlled trials aren't useful. Um, it's just that they can't be our primary strategy. Like, I think our, our primary strategy needs to be to support state and local leaders to use their own data to evaluate programs and policies because their own data is going to be a lot more persuasive than any third-party study. And then for specific um, questions that come up in the course of those analyses, if we need to get them confirmed or verified or some other, um, if we have some interesting questions about the mechanisms by which some of these interventions work, that might be the kind of thing that a, a 
some centrally um, managed RCTs might be able to help with. But it's just, if our goal is to drive change behavior and drive um, uh, policies towards more effective solutions, I would have to describe you know, what we've done so far is a near complete failure. Like, I, at least I've got a theory for how um, evidence would actually have an effect on policy. People who are running the What Works Clearinghouse don't even have a theory, or to the extent that they have a theory, it's been proven wrong. Well, my sense is that the focus has been on the supply side entirely, but there's right. been no attention to the demand side of education research. But it, I might have that, say, you know, asking why people aren't out there looking for evidence from sources like the What Works Clearinghouse, right? But I could imagine that same concern with your proposal uh, because I don't see a tremendous amount of appetite or capacity out there in the education sector to engage in this type of ongoing evaluation of new programs uh, yeah. that you're so, calling. I mean, I think the problem right now is that we, so I agree. Um, that that is sort of um, a, an untested proposition that if you make this faster and cheaper to do, that lots of states and districts would start to do it. Um, by the way, that that's my um, hypothesis for why we haven't seen much of it so far, is that um, states and districts don't know how to do it. And if we could help them build the infrastructure for doing it, um, where they don't have to go uh, contract with a private contract research firm every time they want to evaluate a, you know, a five hundred thousand dollar program with a five million dollar um, evaluation that takes five years, they're not going to do it. So I think we need to we need to help them. For instance, do some. Um, much lower cost kinds of evaluations where we use their own longitudinal data to find matching comparison groups whenever they're trying anything new and then just automatically report you know compare treatment and comparison group outcomes each time that there's a new outcome available so why haven't states and districts invested in building the capacity to do this if you think it would be so useful to them sort of so to some extent, I think it's, it's honestly, re remember, before 2002, none of these longitudinal, well, not none, but very few states had um, longitudinal databases that they could use for any purpose like this. Um, since 2002, um, they have, you know, worked on various parts of the problem. They've worked on ways to uh, create uh, unique student IDs to be able to track students over time. They've now worked on ways to um, uh, match students to teachers. Uh, and um, and honestly, I, I just think they have not gotten around to <laughs> this next stage. And there's been a lack of imagination um, 
and technical expertise at the state level. And I think that's one thing IES and the federal government could help them do. So is the, the infrastructure move to the next stage. is now there and people just don't know how to use it yet. The infrastructure, interestingly, is something of an outgrowth of accountability policy. Yes, right. Yeah. Actually, so the, all these data, which could be used for evaluating programs and policies, are now mostly being used for issuing school report cards and calculating AYP status. Um, but the same data could be used for other purposes. I mean, there are some things that are missing. Um, so first of all, we are m missing the mechanisms for tracking which teachers and which students and which schools are getting which interventions. Um, so Yeah, we've become much better at tracking outcomes, but we right. actually don't track inputs with any uh, degree of precision. Right, so we invest you know, billions of dollars in professional development that yet we don't track which teachers are getting which mm -hmm. types of training. And if we started to do that, uh, we could learn much more quickly about what's working and what's not. Or which textbooks, textbooks are being yeah, used in which classroom. Exactly, that's yeah. the simplest one. You know, so, um, so we're, you know, why aren't we linking uh, which classrooms are using which textbooks and just reporting, comparing student achievement gains year to year. It's just part of what we need to recognize, and this is something that I, um, that I think way too few people appreciate, and that is because if they did, they'd be, there'd be much more um, uh, emphasis on the need to evaluate things. Most of the things we're trying are not working. We know that in every other field that has dared to actually learn whether things work, they find that most things don't work. Like that our hunches about how you, how you um, motivate students or how you get teachers to change their practice, that the, the processes by which students learn and the way teachers change their practice are just too complicated to anticipate every obstacle. So. I, we're sure most, we can bet that most of the things we're trying aren't working, we just don't know which ones. And, um, and, and in, until we come up with a way to much more regularly evaluate things as they're being implemented at the state and local level, I just don't see us ever moving, you know, identifying the ineffective things as quickly as we need to be and and promoting the growth of the effective things as quickly as we need to. Now, that all makes sense, but I can hear researchers out there listening to this saying, uh, I hear Tom calling for a new generation of observational studies. Uh, yeah. And didn't we learn from a long line of research actually dating back to the Coleman report, which you discuss in your essay, that the results of observational studies can be quite unreliable. And so uh, will we really get good information out of this sort of uh, evaluate as it goes, regardless of how it's implemented approach? So very few of the observational studies that were in the, done in the past use this design where you're matching on the basis of prior student achievement. Coleman didn't do that. Coleman had a cross-section and, um, and couldn't trace, try to attach, measure student achievement gains. You know, 
One of the remarkable things that um, we've learned over the last few years is that when people have uh, tried to measure the effects of teachers non-experimentally and then checked whether or not those as teacher impacts approximate the causal impact, they found actually, I'd say the lion's share of the evidence suggests that there's little bias, um, surprisingly little bias. And similarly for charter schools and right. magnet schools as well, yes. that seems to be the yeah. emerging consensus. So, so I'm not, I'm not going to say based on, on the evidence that we have so far that we know that these quasi-experimental estimates yield unbiased estimates. It's just that I'm not as pessimistic that we should always rule out the quasi-experimental evidence, especially when it, we could produce it much faster and cheaper than we could produce the experimental. Like, th that's why I was saying before, it, like, we should be thinking of this as, a two, as a, at least a two-stage process, whereby lo state and local um, decision makers are piloting things getting using this kind of matched comparison group um uh high turn you know fast turnaround design to learn about impacts then as we start to see patterns for instance you know if there's a particular type of professional development that seems to be having a positive impact when tested a bunch of different places this way that would be the time then that that the federal government could fund an RCT to see whether, in fact, that is right or not. But, but the days, we're just deluding ourselves if we think that the five-year, six-year, you know, $15 million studies funded by IES are having any impact whatsoever out in the field. I, 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 would, I would love to see examples uh, uh, where it has. So how do we get there from here what can various entities do to try and support this transition build this capacity in state and local education agencies so i think actually um the timing for a lot of reasons is is just right um that states and districts have already built the longitudinal data systems for tracking teachers and students and outcomes they don't currently have a way for tracking which teachers and which schools am, are getting which interventions. The other thing that they don't have is um, like the statistical engine for generating the comparison groups. By the way, that's been, that work has already been done in other fields like um, retail sales. Mm -hmm. there, there are all sorts of ways of, of, trying, of applying these matching algorithms to evaluate um, natural experiments in and it really can be automated you're right saying. yes yeah. and so what 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 i would think is that the ies should use some of the money that is currently going to the regional education labs and fund a couple of states to try to develop this kind of system that i'm talking about and once you know, a couple of models exist, um, then I think it would be easier to get other states to replicate it. I mean, un under ESSA, 
uh, states have the option to use some of the federal money, as you as you've written mm -hmm. about, um, for uh, for exactly this kind of thing, evaluating ongoing initiatives when there aren't existing s studies that they can point to. And it seems like foundations could also play a role either through yeah. their direct giving or by saying, look, we want to see you putting this type of infrastructure in place if you're going to uh, right. get a gift from us for other purposes. So, so in fact, we too, um, the Center for Education Policy Research does have a grant from um, the Gates Foundation to start to develop such a thing. Um, in, and we're starting in a few um, districts and a group of charter schools this year. But it's actually partially because of that work that I'm most excited about the prospects for this kind of model, that, um, that I think it will be possible to, um, to see much more quickly and much more cheaply using these quasi-experimental design, what seems to be working and what's not. And I would argue that that evidence, although I don't, I can't prove that to you quite yet, I'm betting that that evidence will be much more likely to actually drive changes in behavior than a thousand more studies in the Wet Works Clearinghouse. Well, uh, thank you, Tom, for leaving us with a hopeful vision for the future. Uh, thanks also for your article, Connecting to Practice, How We Can Put Education Research to Work, which uh, is available now at educationnext.org and will be in the spring 2016 issue of Education Next. Thanks, Tom. Great. Thanks, Marty. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org. Thank you.